When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Martyrs and Missionaries is a production of Revive Studios. You're listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise, and in every episode, I'll bring you a new martyr and or missionary, the called and the brave. In this episode, we're examining the life of two World War II national heroes, one Japanese and one American. This episode is in part a listener-requested episode. Many of you have written me asking me to cover a man named Jacob DeShazer. And as I did research into DeShazer, I found a man named Mitsuo Fuchida. And both of these guys are absolutely incredible. And I stumbled across Mitsuo's biography called God's Samurai. It's written by Gordon Prangi. And Mitsuo actually had a hand in having it written. He uh, traveled along with Prangi back to Japan um, to help him write it, and it's really, really good. You can get it for free from the, um, I think, archive.org. I'll link it, as I always do. It's really, really good. And so this episode is going to have, it's mostly going to fixate on Mitsuo, but Jacob DeShazer will be here as well because their stories are, in some ways, they're inseparable from each other, as you will see. And this is a good time for me to plug my episode on the rise and fall of Christianity in Japan. This episode makes a lot more sense when you think of the history of Japan prior to World War II. So I recommend if you don't have time for part one and part two, at least check out part two because it really helps you understand the mindset of what was going on in Japan leading up to their days as an imperial empire. Mitsuo Fuchida was born in December of 1902 in the Nara Prefecture, which is in south-central Japan. He was a career military man in the Imperial Japanese Air Service. He married a nice girl named Haruko and had two lovely kids, a boy and a girl. Now, he was gone most of the time because he's a career military guy, and he gained combat experience in the Japanese invasion of Manchuria, which is in northern China. He was very, very successful in his military career, and he was promoted to the position of naval commander in 1941, two months before the attack on Pearl Harbor. The Japanese surprise attack on Pearl Harbor in Hawaii began just before 8 a.m. local time Sunday morning, December 7, 1941. For over an hour in two different waves, some 350 Japanese aircraft, having taken off from six aircraft carriers 230 miles north of Oahu, attacked the naval base. 
Japanese forces absolutely wreaked havoc across all of the U.S. naval vessels and a U.S. aircraft carrier on the island's airfield. All in all, almost 2,500 Americans, including 68 civilians, died in the attack. Now, in comparison to this, Japan actually didn't have a lot of problems at all. They only lost 29 aircraft and a few mini submarines. Across the nation, Americans were absolutely, they were stunned, they were shocked, they were angry. And before this, the Americans were thinking, why would we get involved with World War II? We did this in World War I. We don't really want to. We don't really need to. What does this have to do with us? Well, after Pearl Harbor, it had everything to do with Americans. And so public opinion shifted to getting into the war. And on December 8th, one day later, the U.S. declared war on Japan. Mitsuo Fuchida was the man who led the first wave of fighter jets over Pearl Harbor. He relayed the message Tora 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 back to the Japanese command, which meant surprise attack successful in code. And he became a celebrity basically overnight. He was invited to meet the Japanese emperor, Hirohito, and he gifted the emperor a detailed map of the damage done by the attack. And this map can actually be found in the Library of Congress. It was held privately for many years, and, and now it resides there. And this is where Mitsuo's life intersects in a way with that of Jacob DeShazer. Jacob DeShazer was born in 1912 in Oregon to Christian parents, and he himself was not a Christian. He was an atheist. And I couldn't find anything on his childhood or his early life before the war. So as far as I can tell, he was born into the military, and he was stationed in Oregon when he learns about the attack on Pearl Harbor. And he vows to get revenge against them. He throws a potato up against the wall. He's very hot-headed, naturally, as you would be when you hear about an attack like that. And he becomes absolutely embittered against the Japanese. And he allows this hatred to just fester and fester and build up. And when the military comes around knocking for volunteers, asking them to do a secret surprise attack on Japan, DeShazer is absolutely delighted and volunteers with glee. And he goes into an intense bombardier training, but he has no idea what he's going to do until right before it's going to happen. And he realizes that he had volunteered for what would become known as the Doolittle Raid and became one of the Doolittle Raiders, named after James Doolittle, who had planned and executed the attack. The plan was to fly over Tokyo and other major cities to bomb a series of military targets that would cripple the Japanese war machine. Each of the 16 bombers flew with a crew of five and were ordered to land in friendly China. That was over 2,000 miles to fly without refueling. DeShazer's plane, Bat Out of Hell, was the last to leave the aircraft. And it's important to note that none of these planes had had any practice leaving an aircraft carrier, taking off from one. So it's actually quite amazing that none of them landed in the ocean. Doolittle's plane almost did, but didn't. When they take off, they realize there is a slight crack in either the bomb bay or the cockpit. I'm not sure which one, but it slowed them down considerably. And although they successfully bombed their targets, it cost them a lot of fuel. DeShazer, in his hatred against the Japanese, fired on civilian fishing boats. But luckily, he missed. They were forced to parachute out over Shanghai, which was held by the Japanese. Eight men in total were captured from the raid, and DeShazer himself lands on a tiny tombstone, and he cracks a bunch of his ribs, so that made escape very, very difficult for him. Now, the outcome of the Doolittle raid is a little interesting because it's not its not a particularly successful raid in the sense of, like, did they take out a bunch of, of military Assets for the Japanese, no, but it was a surprise for Japan, much like Pearl Harbor was, but with less detriment. 
but it caused the Japanese people to worry over the ability of the military to protect the island of Japan. And in return, it lifted the morale of the Americans. But the people who really paid the highest toll were the Chinese. Almost 3,000 of them, soldiers and civilians, were butchered in retaliation. All eight of the captured Doolittle Raiders were sentenced to death, but five of those sentences were commuted by Emperor Hirohito himself, including the Shazer's sentence. The other three, at least two of whom were pilots, were executed on crosses, and the Shazer is held in various POW camps in China um, for over 40 months. 34 of them were spent in solitary confinement. When one of their cellmates dies, one of the Japanese guards gifts them with an English Bible, and each one of the men is allowed to keep it for a series of three weeks. DeShazer is last on the list because he's the lowest enlisted man. And when you're in prison, you don't have a whole lot to read, but he also had a, a ton of time to think before he'd even received the Bible, thinking back to his childhood, his parents' faith, his own hatred of the Japanese, what he was going to do when he got out, all these different things kind of warred within him. And as he's reading through the Bible, he stops the passage where Jesus is on the cross and he's hanging there. And he prays for the forgiveness of those in attendance and says, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And that passage stuck out to him. And on June 8, 1944, he became a believer. But it's not like he instantly became a forgiving, loving person. He still struggled with bitterness against the Japanese that he had to work on very consciously. And so one of the very small things he decided to do was just be nice to his guard every day, every time that he saw him. And so every every morning he would greet his guard with a good morning and just, you know, very pleasant. And the guard was really weirded out by this because before this point, DeShazer had been very contemptuous and just moody, uh, which as one would expect. And after weeks of DeShazer being kind to him, he was rewarded with a sweet potato that he says he could still taste. It was absolutely the most incredible thing he had ever tasted because they were all being forcefully starved. They were being, I don't know exactly how they did this, but they would take these like a bamboo rod and put it behind your knees and jump on it to dislocate your knees, among other horrible things. So they were all in just terrible condition. But despite all this, while he's still in prison, he feels that God is calling him to return after the war to be a missionary back in Japan. And when he is liberated August 20th, 1945, he pretty much immediately goes to Seattle Pacific University, which is a Christian college in Seattle. And there he meets his wife and he has the first of his five children and he goes back to Japan in 1948, a mere three years later. Before DeShazer's arrival, it was being hyped up in Japan that he was coming back, that he had been a prisoner of Japan. And what actually sold his story more than anything else was the fact that he had been one of the Doolittle Raiders, which had gained him respect, grudging admiration in the eyes of the Japanese. And so his pamphlet called I Was a Prisoner in Japan was being widely read, widely distributed. And that leads us back to Mitsuo Fuchida. After the attack on Pearl Harbor, he continues warring in the Pacific, and he's very, very successful, rises through the ranks, but he's injured at the Battle of Midway. He's recovering from an appendectomy, and as the ship is being fired upon, they have to evacuate, and he slides down a rope, but an explosion blows him back onto the deck and breaks both of his ankles, and as a result, he spends the rest of the war as a staff officer stationed around Japan. 
He's actually in Hiroshima the day before the atomic bomb is dropped, but he gets called back to Tokyo for a last-minute meeting. And the day after the atomic bomb was dropped, he's back in Hiroshima inspecting the damage. Everybody else who was there in that meeting died of radiation poisoning. And he tells, and in his biography, he tells of just how horrifying it is. He goes to the veterans' hospital after the war, and he's being inspected, and everyone's keeping an eye on him and anybody else who was exposed. And he looks at just the rapid deterioration of the other people who are there who have this radiation poisoning that's just quickly ravaging their bodies. And he describes them, and it's just horrifying. And there's one other man that's there with him. That doesn't seem to show any signs of radiation poisoning. As as they're they're let out of the military hospital, he remarks to Mitsuo how lucky they were that they're the only two that s- survived unscathed. But within a year, this other guy also dies of radiation poisoning. Which, if you're Mitsuo, that's got to be very very nerve-wracking for you because you might just feel on some level that you're a ticking time bomb because radiation poisoning is just absolutely horrifying um and and so you can imagine that would be weighing on your mind as well the defeat of japan you have all these different things that are happening that i'll get into in a minute but the the foremost in my mind at least would be am i going to be a victim of radiation poisoning after the japanese surrender macarthur takes over and he is in charge of of basically guiding post-war japan Some of the policies that he enacts are good, and some of them are not so good. Um, For example, after the America is occupying Japan, they are no longer, Japan is no longer able to have a military, which makes sense, but they're also no longer able to have pensions. And so even people who were, were retired from military long before World War II began were no longer able to access their pension, and neither were widows able to access their husbands' pensions. He also opens up the prisons that Japan had been housing a ton of political prisoners in. And many of these political prisoners were communists, and that caused a lot of problems, as we will see going through this story. Also, if you were in the military, not only was there no longer a place for you because there was no longer a military, but you were also no no longer able to hold a teaching position. You were no longer able to hold a government position. So any skills that you had from the military you were no longer able to use them. The Americans also set up a series of tribunals to to judge the Japanese on specific war crimes. And Mitsuo Fujita was actually brought into several of these. I don't believe he was ever himself placed on trial, but he was at to be witness to the trial of many other uh, Japanese. And he was very furious about this because he thought both sides committed atrocities because it's wartime. So it's only because the Americans won that they feel they have the right to judge the Japanese on their war crimes. And so he feels feels very vindictive. And he wants to be vindicated in that he's right. So the next time he's called up to one of these tribunals, he can just, you know, flash his papers that he's collected and just be like, ha, you're also guilty. And so in this pursuit, he hears about a number of Japanese POWs that are returning from the U.S. where they had been held during the war, and he is determined to get some nitty-gritty stories from them. But what he hears is actually they were treated quite well. Now, every POW camp is a POW camp. It's not a resort. It's not a hotel, as he's told by one of his friends, whom he had thought was dead at the Battle of Midway. But he says, I was never unfairly mistreated. Was it always the nicest place? No. But he tells a story about a lady named Peggy Koval. 
And I wish I had more information on her life after this moment. I just don't. But Peggy Koval was coming into these Japanese POW camps and was checking in on the prisoners. She didn't speak any Japanese, but she was very kind to the men, would always say, hey, if you need something, just let me know. It was just very loving and kind. And a lot of the Japanese at this point, because they had been held for so long or had just had basic understanding of English, they were able to ask her, you know, why are you being so kind to us? And so she answered and said, She had been raised in Japan. Her parents had been missionaries. And after the war started to kind of crank up, they fled to the Philippines where they thought that they would be safe. And when the the Japanese took over the Philippines, they fled from Manila up into the mountains. And they had this whole community ongoing uh, called Hope Vale. And there were many people who were attending their meetings and everything was going really well and it was thriving. But when the Americans came and took back Manila, the Japanese fled up into the mountains, and when they came to Hope Vale, they saw that there was a radio there, and they were accused the Hope Vale um, missionaries of being spies. And so they they took them and they murdered them all, even the children. But before they did so, these missionaries asked if they could pray for 30 minutes, and they were granted the ability to do so. And Peggy didn't hear about her, her parents' fate until after the war, and she was just filled with rage and with bitterness. But as she began to reflect more on it, she thought, why did they ask for 30 minutes to pray? What what was it they were praying for? And as she as she was thinking more about it and the more on the character of her parents, she realized that they were praying for the forgiveness of the Japanese. And so she said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go and I'm going to try to overcome my own bitterness. And so that's when she began going to these Japanese uh, camps. And she slowly but surely was able to overcome bitterness with love through the power of Christ. And that just stuck with every single Japanese POW that was there because it was so foreign. And it also stuck with Mitsuo because in Japanese culture, you actually, you hope to be reborn if if you are wrongfully killed. You hope to be reborn seven times so that you can enact revenge seven times. And then if that doesn't work, then your children, you know, come after you and they begin exacting revenge in this just never ending cycle. And so this idea of forgiveness was just completely foreign to them and just just shook them to the core. They didn't know what to do with it. Mitsuo's conversion story is not necessarily like just just Shazer's testimony reads a lot more like, you know, within three weeks time, he was a believer, he'd worked through everything. And that's how it works for some people. But for other people like Mitsuo, it was a very lengthy process. Because after the war, he also lost his job. And he was also seen as the guy who lost the war for Japan. So whereas he had been this national war hero, now he was like, they looked at him and they were just like, "Ugh, you're the reason why we lost You, you and your nationalistic thing you know it just became the enemy in his people's eyes and that was something that really bothered him and filled him with bitterness and slowly but surely he was able to uh, kind of build his family back from the ground up um, using the land that his wife had um, had basically in a dowry and he began to just marvel at just the little things in farming thinking you know there's a creator and then through the through the process of the tribunal, he began thinking there has to be an ultimate judge. So there's all these different shifting things. He had this idea of justice and he had this idea of creation. And it was really quite profound. And then he has this, he hears about Peggy Koval, and then he is thinking through this idea of, of forgiveness. What could lead one to be able to forgive like that? 
And as he's going to one of these other tribunals, he's passing by a railway station and he sees this American guy standing on top of a truck and he's giving away these different tracts. And if it had been anybody else's tract, he would have not paid any attention to it. But the reason that he was attracted to this tract was because it was the story of Jacob DeShazer, who had been a Doolittle Raider, and that had won Mitsuo's also admiration. And so he began to read this story and he thought, oh, this is really interesting. I I really need to hear more about this guy. And so he picks up um, a New Testament, which was being sold for just absolutely pennies because inflation was through the roof in Japan. And he was very surprised at how cheap it was to purchase New Testament, which at the time he didn't realize was just the New Testament. So as he's reading through, he feels like he only has half the story, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So he takes his Bible and he just, he just doesn't read it at first. He just sets it on a shelf and for nine months, it doesn't do anything. And also in his own personal life, there's just, he, he's having an affair with a, with a gal named Kimmy and Kimmy is very determined to take him away from his wife, have him divorce her, marry him. They can have this beautiful life together. And Mitsuo is in, is kind of a, in this way, he's kind of a weak man. He doesn't he doesn't really want to leave his wife, but Kimmy's kind of crazy. And so he just he doesn't know what to do. And without telling his wife that he is having an affair, even though she probably knows he keeps going sneaking off um, to be with Kimmy. So it's not I don't I don't believe his wife was completely clueless about what was happening. But Mitsuo asks his wife Haruko for a divorce. And she says, no, not going to give it to you. Not going to happen. And you're not going to do this to us. <laughs> and he's like, oh, okay. So then he has to go back to Kimmy and say, yeah, I can't get a divorce from the wife. So anyway, during these, these nine months where his Bible just sat on the, sat on the shelf completely untouched, he, uh, he happens to be on a train and he's reading this article that's talking about the Bible and how it's you know, one of the most impactful books in the world. And he thinks, oh, I should probably check it up, you know, pick it up, check it out. And so he does. And as he reads through it, he's taking little snippets as he's, you know, as he's doing his farm life, he's just checking out these little things. And he comes to this passage where the Lord is hanging on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they, they're doing. And that passage, like it struck the Shazer and like it struck Peggy Coville, it just resonates in his heart. And he thinks, I'm the person who doesn't know what he's doing. Like I, and he, he immediately uh, becomes a believer at that point, but he spends this this these several months in hiding. He doesn't want to come out to the community. He doesn't want to tell his wife. He does tell Kimmy, who claims to be a believer, and so she's very happy with him for him, and thinks this is just one more thing that's going to lead him away from his wife and into the loving arms of Kimmy. But there's still something nagging at him. He feels like he doesn't have enough of the information. And so as he's looking at his Bible, he realizes there's an address on it. And so he writes to the address on this Pocket Testament League. That's the name of the company. And he asks how he can know more about Christianity. And for several months, he doesn't hear an answer. And he begins to kind of panic, thinking, oh, what, what if I just never know? And eventually he gets a letter back. And the guy apologizes because he just has a bunch of mail that comes in. And he didn't see it uh, before now. And so he goes to this meeting. And there's these um, a Japanese translator. There's a couple of Americans. And they learn about who he is. And they tell him the reason that he feels such shame and he doesn't understand the rest of the, the gospel and things like that is because he needs he needs to testify. He's been hiding. He needs to give his testimony. 
And so they push him out on the stage in Osaka, and he's very, very nervous. Um, but as he's standing there in the middle of rush hour in Osaka, he begins to give his testimony. And in the way that he talks, it really reminds me of the Apostle Paul as he's going through. He doesn't just start you know, telling the story of Jesus. He talks and he tells you know, his, the history of Japan, he tells his role in the history of Japan, how he was a war hero, how he fought for Japan, how he loves Japan, and then kind of going through these different things until he gets the gospel. And people realized who he was there in Osaka, and so they stop and they listen to him, and this crowd just goes bigger and bigger and bigger, which is quite the accomplishment in Osaka at rush hour. And it goes so well. And he just is so overjoyed that he's finally been able to share this testimony of his. But there is there is a problem that nags at his brain. And it's a problem that he actually deals with quite a bit. And it, it's exploitation. Because he's such a famous guy in Japan and in the world, a lot of different groups seek to exploit him. And the first group that exploited him, I think, good-naturedly, but it just they they wanted to be they were trying to get into japan they thought oh this is a japanese war hero you know people will listen to him and we can you know spread the gospel more effectively through him but they weren't so concerned with his own spiritual health for example they didn't ask him to get baptized they didn't try to disciple him they immediately shoved him before crowds and said that's enough so ongoing is this affair with kimmy and he just feels like something is missing um, and during this time, as he's feeling this way, he meets the Shazer, and he's he's overjoyed to meet the Shazer because the Shazer had this impact in his life. Um, and he respects him as a brother in Christ and also as a fellow soldier. And the Shazer is pretty demoralized um, because it's just not going very well for him in Japan. People are excited to see him because of his reputation, but they're not particularly interested in the message that he has. And so he's fasting, and he's been fasting for a while. But Mitsuo is an answer to prayer for DeShazer because they had been looking for inroads with the Japanese and Mitsuo, you know, shows up and he's, you know, he's very well known in Japan. Even if you, after this point, even if you hate him as a, as a traitor, like you know who he is. And DeShazer and Mitsuo give this absolutely huge rally and they add in hymns at the beginning and end of the rally, which is revolutionary, I suppose, in Japan because it just, the people were... It just, it just helped prepare their hearts like it does for all of us. And when Mitsuo saw this, he said, oh, this is really, really good. Like, we need more of this. In the beginning, the, the Japanese crowd was not so sure about the hymns, but at the end, they were, they were you know, singing and, and they were really getting into it. And the Shazer gets up and talks. It's a, it's a huge success. And newspapers picked up the story of his talk with the Shazer of um, Mitsuo's conversion, and it just gets carried all over Japan. And it reaches the ears of a Catholic bishop in Osaka. And this Catholic bishop says, hey, you know, come over here. You can, you know, I want you to, I want you to meet with me. And he meets with them at the, basically one of the biggest buildings in Osaka, which is this Catholic church. And this bishop is just a very genuine, very happy guy. And, and Mitsuo doesn't have a whole lot of idea between the difference in different denominations. Uh, he does realize that Catholics are different than Protestants, but he doesn't doesn't fully understand in what ways. And this bishop is talking about uh, Mitsuo's book. He had a little pamphlet that said, I bombed Pearl Harbor. And he says, oh, I see you made this, um, this much yen. If you publish it under Catholic sponsorship, you can make even more. And he begins showing Mitsuo this church. 
and he's and and this bishop is going on and on about it. But as Mitsuo looks at it, you know, all he sees is just this gaudy kind of. It just it, do, it doesn't sit right with him because his people are starving, and this church is absolutely immaculate. And to him, it echoes that of the Buddhist temples and of the Shinto temples, where they're beautiful buildings, but they do nothing for the people themselves. And so he tells the bishop, "Hey, I'll think about it." And then he goes home, writes him a letter, and says, "Yeah, I just don't think the Catholic Church is for me." But he's he's nice about it, but he's very direct about it. And even after this, different Catholic emissaries come to him, trying to convince them, trying to convince Mensuo to become a Catholic, and he just goes, "Eh, it's not for me." But also, another group of people that were trying to reach out to Mitsuo were the communists, who had been let out of prison in droves, and they were causing civil unrest in Japan. And the Japanese were not super keen on the communists as a whole. It was much more popular among the younger generation, um, which makes sense. That's kind of who is attracted to communism in all countries across all different cultures. But Mitsuo is very opposed to communism, and he gets this letter from this guy, and it reads very much like a like a religious statement. And I'll read it to you, and I'll read you uh, Fuchida's reply because I think it's just it's grand. The communist says, "I surmise that this is your first contact with the Bible, which also may be true of Lenin Marxism. Therefore, I advise you to give the same persistence and fervor you are devoting to the Bible, also to Lenin Marxism. If you will allow me, I shall undertake to guide you to the knowledge of the doctrine of Lenin Marxism." And Fuchida replies. I acknowledge your most cordial letter. As you have surmised, this is my first time in searching the Bible. In my 47 years of life, I have learned that a dose of hydrochloric acid, if taken internally, will lead to death. Yet I have never seen this poison. Therefore, I have not the faintest idea of its form, color, or odor. But if someone should hand me this deadly poison, it would be ridiculous for me to experiment by taking it just to see if it was poison or not. To me, Lenin Marxism is like hydrochloric acid. Thank you. On the other side of it, with Catholics on one end, communists on another end, there's also the patriots. And he tells a story of a guy named Nakamura who comes to visit him. He's a nationalist, and he thinks Mitsuo is a traitor to Japan because he's taken up uh, the uh, taken up Christianity, which to them is MacArthur's religion, and they're trying to make the Japanese lose their identity, which was a problem not just starting with uh, MacArthur. But it goes way, way, way back to like the 1600s in Japan. But he is so offended, Nakamura is, that he wants to kill Mitsuo. But he he get, he sits down and he listens to Mitsuo tell his testimony. And he tells it talking about himself as a patriot for Japan. He does not hate Japan. He loves Japan. In fact, if Japan needed him again, he would take up arms for Japan. And so Nakamura, he hears this and he's very... He's very taken aback by it, but in a good way. And he puts this knife away, which he was going to stab Mitsuo with. And he says, I might make my way to Christ. And he hobbles off. He's, he's missing a leg, and the war has not been kind to him. If five years later, Mitsuo sees him at one of his rallies, and he did, in fact, make his way to Christ. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. 
book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. The other side of this is a lot of these rallies, when they would give the ultra call at the end, a lot of the Japanese would raise their hands. And these Americans that were talking would be like, yeah, these people became Christians. But there was no discipleship afterwards. There was no follow-up. And so these numbers would get reported back, but there actually wasn't any real conversion. And I think a story that tells this really, really well is one morning they were going to be giving a huge rally in Kyoto. And Mitsuo gets there a little bit early. He's he's covering for somebody who's supposed to be showing the film, and he has knowledge of the film strip, how to work it. And so he's there behind the scenes. And in the very front row, there's these different police officers, and the police chief comes up to them and says, hey, yesterday, none of you guys raised your hands. And I don't want word of this getting back to MacArthur, and they get unhappy with us. So when they give that call, that y- you will all shoot your hands up. And Mitsuo, start, he tries not to laugh, and he's just, he's just amused. And so when the time for the altar call comes after the rally, all of these police, uh, police officers raise their hands up, and the American speaker is over the moon. And Mitsuo never has the heart to tell him that these weren't actually genuine conversions. So as you can see, there's a ton of different things that are that are hindering the Japanese from hearing the gospel and actually understanding it, one of which is they feel it's a betrayal to their cultural identity. Another is they they kind of put it in the camp of Westernism and the occupation. And just it, there's just so many different roadblocks that exist even today in Japan. While they're on one of these tours, Mitsuo has the opportunity to go to a Japanese church. He has never, in all of these months, has never been inside of a church. He's only done these rallies which is another point of contention with the way that he was exploited. Like he, he, His actual spiritual well-being was never considered. And when he sees this Japanese church and he sees all these people who are getting along so well, young and old, um, and they're just genuinely kind and they greet him and they welcome him, that was something he'd never seen. A lot of the young people in Japan were very angry um, and they were very bitter. And so he sees this genuine love and he wants to know more about it. And so instead of taking off with the tour, he decides to stay behind for a few months and begin attending this church. And he gets discipleship, and he actually breaks things off with Kimmy because he realizes through attending a church, learning more about what um, what a Christian walk looks like, that his relationship with Kimmy was against God's commands. And so in October of 1850, he breaks it off with Kimmy, and he tells Haruko all that was going on. Haruko is his wife, and he tells her all these things, and she is not happy about this. I mean, it's not that she didn't know, 
but she offers to take his daughter. He has a daughter with Kimmy. But when he approaches uh, approaches Kimmy about it, Kimmy loses her mind and, and just absolutely refuses um, because she loves her daughter and she thinks that if she holds on to this daughter, she'll still be able to get Mitsuo back. And so that's kind of how things end with Kimmy. And in March of 1951, Mitsuo is baptized, but he never ever once pushes his wife. He wants her to come of her own accord. And on Christmas Eve 1951, Haruko is baptized. And on Easter, his two children, Yoshia and Miyako, are also baptized in 1952. And as always happens with these things, I think we've had this happen so many times in people's stories, is once they become serious about their faith, there's always something that comes up to tempt them away from it. And for Mitsuo, he was offered a position in the Self-Defense Air Force. And this had been basically a concession by the Americans because the Korean War was was beginning and they needed the Japanese as allies. And so this actually was really good for the Japanese-American relationship because instead of seeing it as this kind of domineering relationship, they began to work pretty early on as partnerships. And that's kind of what has helped America and the U.S. just have, they have maintained this allyship and camaraderie ever since. So Mitsuo has offered this position and it's a pretty high position and he's tempted to give up this evangelism, but he decides instead to serve in an advisory position. And he's still poor. He's not making a whole lot of money. And and to kind of supplement his income, he writes different articles, one of which, and is probably his most popular one, is entitled Midway, The Battle That Doomed Japan. And as he's evangelizing to these different groups, he begins to be frustrated because he's he's a pilot. He's not used to walking around and getting places by land. And he's he wants to go into the interior of Japan, but it's impossible because it's so rural. And he wants a plane or even better, a helicopter, because then he doesn't have to rely on airstrips. And he begins to pray about it. And he even writes an article about it, how good it would be to have. And he gets reached out to by a group called the Sky Pilots. And their leader at the time was a man whose name was Mr. Sachs. Mr. Sachs seemed to promise everything that Mitsuo was looking for. He said, hey, you come to America, we can do fundraising for you to get this helicopter. You can open the Japanese chapter of the Sky Pilots. It could be everything that you want and hope for. But first, you need to go to the Tokyo Bible Seminary, and that way you can learn English, and that would just help you be able to come over here and do ministry. And he says, okay. But the seminary is not in line with the way that Mitsuo believes. Primarily, they think that there is a scientific reasoning behind miracles. They doubt this supernatural, and he does not like it. And so he only stays for three days, and he says, hey, I'm coming over, guys. And they were not too happy about that because they thought, oh, you need more training. Um, But he comes over anyway on a barge, and he's headed for San Francisco. But before he leaves, he writes an article, and it's published in the Osaka newspaper. And it says, 11 years ago, this November 1952, I headed east across the Pacific to bomb Pearl Harbor. At that time, I was a brilliant soldier of the emperor, and I was very uneasy because of all the responsibilities on my shoulders. Now I am again going east across the Pacific to the United States. This time, too, I am a soldier, but a soldier of Christ. This time I have a calm, easy, and relaxed feeling, and the desire to be a goodwill ambassador for Christ. But even as he was writing that article and was feeling more encouraged, there were several articles that were being written and published that were the opposite, uh, very discouraging to him. 
One editorial said that evidently Fujita's work in the United States was of a religious nature, but after all, he had commanded the Pearl Harbor attack pilots. Don't touch the old wound, the writer begged. Don't recall the old memory. According to the editor, all Japanese Americans in California feared Fujita's coming. He closed by suggesting that the Japanese government be more careful in issuing passports to the United States. And there were many of these articles that were coming out, and it was very discouraging for him to read. But one thing that was very encouraging for him was to meet Billy Graham. Billy Graham invited him onto his television program to share his testimony, and he took an instant liking to Billy Graham. And the two actually remained friends their entire lives. They did crusades together and different things like that over the years. And so that was a really high point in his life, was even though there was all this discouraging stuff, there was Billy Graham on one side, and then also all of these different churches that were so welcoming to him when you would imagine that they wouldn't be. One example of this stood out to me, and I want to share it with you guys. One day as he's at this church, or I guess one evening, he's at this church, and his his translator is not there. And Uchida has difficulty expressing himself well in English, and he's waiting for his interpreter. His interpreter just never shows up. So he decides to go ahead and do the the. Uh, speaking in English, even though his his English is very basic. He steps up to the podium and he says, this is my first English speaking. I have been in the United States one month only. I will try to make you hear my message in your language. As the audience realized what he was attempting to do, they broke into a round of clapping by way of encouragement and as a vote of confidence. And Fujita proceeded, but it was kind of halting and it was a little bit dicey but he spoke with conviction and he gave a 30-minute talk and he had to just continually stop looking for words and at the end the congregation applauded heartily and afterwards a little old lady came up to him she said i couldn't understand your english but i could well understand that you love the lord jesus christ Fuchita's entire trip is being funded and sponsored by the sky pilots uh, the head of whom is this guy named mr Sachs, whom i mentioned earlier and he wasn't a very good guy because every time that Fuchita spoke, uh, there was a lot of emotional uh, emotional angst worked up. And Sachs would use that to his advantage to take as much as he could from the people in way of love offering for the sky pilots trying to raise this money for a helicopter. And he was much more interested in raising money for the sky pilots than he was in anything else. And Sachs arranges this trip for Fuchita to take to go to Honolulu, which is it's, it's going to be quite the raw emotional trip for him. And Sachs has this whole idea that he's going to have Fuchita go around with, and he's going to have this whole movie filmed, and he's going to go to the side of Pearl Harbor. He's going to go here. He's going to go there. And Fuchita wasn't, it, what, was not happy about that. He just didn't think it was going to look good. He thought it would just look very, very inappropriate. And he was correct, but he didn't know how to tell Sachs no, because he was like, well, maybe this is okay in America. And it wasn't. And the outrage was actually so intense that he, that Sachs had to, to drop his idea. But even so, Sachs worked him to death at all these churches in Honolulu, Oahu, all these different parts of the islands. And overall, people were very welcoming to Fuchita, which was really good for him and it was good for them. Uh, but he had such a packed schedule that he eventually fainted from exhaustion. And the people who were once very uh, trepidatious about him, he, they began to feel that he actually was genuine. He was sincere. And so all these sympathy letters poured into him. He rests for about two weeks before he's able to just pack up the trip and go back to Japan. 
Now, this entire trip started with the idea that he would go around and, and kind of help raise money for this helicopter and be able to start the Japanese chapter of the Sky Pilots. Once he arrived in America, Fujita's goals kind of changed because he thought this is a selfish reason to come over to America. I just want to you know, share the goodness of God and how he has changed my life. But Sachs was very focused on the monetary aspect and growing the Sky Pilots. And there was some tension there. And at the end of these tours, Fujita kind of snaps on Sachs and says, I feel like I'm just a monkey for you. I'm just I'm just parading around. I'm trumpeting for you. He's like, I don't want to be a monkey for you. I'll be a monkey for Christ, but I won't do it for you and the sky pilots. And that just blows up. And he goes back to Japan, even though he does con he does continue his relationship with the sky pilots because he believes the idea is sound, but eventually it just nothing comes of it and it just kind of drops. But after this, Fuchita goes back to Japan and he immediately launches into doing these rallies and college tours and uh, different prison ministries. But as much as his tour in America had been good for America, it had it had turned some people against him in Japan. They thought he was just now a tool of uh, American imperialism, and especially in the colleges where communism had such a strong hold over these college students. What's interesting about this is the disconnect, the dichotomy between the old and the young generations, because the old generations absolutely, by and large, had no interest in communism because they had seen what it had done, especially to the Japanese who had been captured by the Russians um, during previous wars. And after World War II, Russia turned a lot of these prisoners loose and they came back into Japan, but they were just shells of their former selves. They were just nothing but vessels of, of communist propaganda, basically. And it so freaked them out that they wanted nothing to do with communism. This, this is not my brother or sister or mother or cousin. This is something else. And that was something that just immediately, so they said, no, I don't want any part of that. But the younger people, they were more affected by this disillusionment and, and communism sounded good, it had good promises. And when he goes to these college campuses, there's just a lot of that that is brewing against him. And, and he tells a story of uh, his time at a, a college in Kyoto. And I want to relate a little bit of it to you because I think it's just very fascinating. Fuchida stands up to this platform and he knew that there was no way he could deliver this address because there was so much heckling going on. And all of these different shouts and accusations were flying at him. You're a spy from the U.S. government. You're in favor of rearmament. Uh, we are against the U.S. atomic bomb testing, etc., etc. So he steps off the edge of the platform and he summons his flight deck voice. And he said, do the majority of the students assembled here wish to continue this meeting, he roared. And his voice just cut through the clamor because he is... He's a military guy. And he said, if you don't, then the meeting should be dismissed. But if you want to hold it, then listen to me. The students indicated they wished him to continue. Very well. If you have questions, I'll try to answer them. After that, we'll continue with my talk. And these questions came at him right and left. And even if they were disrespectful, they were honest questions. And in his mind, deserved an honest answer. One student said, are you pro-American? He said, I'm not pro-American and I'm not pro-Soviet Russia. I am not a, I'm a citizen of heaven, I'm pro-Christ, and my main topic today is my Christian work in the U.S. And it was difficult for them to understand the spiritual motives because they were so obsessed with politics that they couldn't possibly think in any other way. But in that way, communism was their religion, so you have to look at it in a way not necessarily politics, but politics with religious fervor. 
And he proceeds to tell them about the state of other countries that are under communist rule. He says people are not running to these communist countries. They're running away from them. He talks about the Soviet experiments, which was news to his audience. And lastly, he mentions that Russia broke its treaty with Japan at the very end of the, of the war. Soviet forces attacked our forces in Manchuria, and they took over two islands, and they occupy them still. What is more, the Soviet Union captured about two million Japanese in Manchuria, and today, after almost 10 years of peace, has returned a mere handful. What do you students think of this fact? Then Fujita's contempt swelled. He said, the truth of the matter is this. Soviet Russia was the thief at the fire. And unless we're Japanese, this has no meaning for us. But for the Japanese, it meant this. Their buildings were made of inflammable materials, and fire had always been a dreaded catastrophe. Recovery was possible only by mutual assistance and protection. To the Japanese, a looter at the fire who enriched himself at the expense of his suffering neighbors was the lowest of the low. Fujita had dared to stand up before a leftist audience and apply to the communist homeland the ultimate epitome of disgust. And instinctively, he felt the moment had come to give him his real message. You cry, peace, peace, but is peace actually in your hearts? You can never have peace while your hearts are filled with bitterness, hatred, and revenge. You can only have peace through the Spirit of Christ and through forgiveness." And he told him about what Pearl Harbor had meant to the Americans. And yet he, as the person who had led the attack on Pearl Harbor, had been received in a spirit of forgiveness and the spirit of Christ himself, even by those people who had lost loved ones at Pearl Harbor, hearkening back to this idea of revenge, the sevenfold revenge that was held by many Japanese at the time. And when he had finished, they gave him a good round of applause. A number of them pushed forward to even shake his hand. Fujita recognized that they were not hardcore communists who would knowingly sell out their country to Moscow. In their own muddled way, they too wanted a Japan of peace and prosperity. They just didn't know how to accomplish it. In many of his college lectures and tours, he had to speak to them in a political context to get to the message of Christ because you couldn't start with the spiritual without breaking down the barriers of the political. As he was doing college tours, he was also doing prison tours. And he gives a talk of this giant prison, one of the, one of the biggest prisons in the area. And he actually, there's nobody's really all that interested at all. But there's a group of 20 convicted murderers who were not allowed to come to the main talk. And Fujita was absolutely determined to have them hear him speak. He wanted to visit them. And so one of the local pastors made the necessary arrangements. These men were on death row, and this was not a time for him to tell war stories like he usually did. So instead, he goes straight to the point, recounting everything he could recall to illustrate Jesus' concern for sinners, his compassion for the unfortunate. He stressed how he had died for them, crucified between two thieves, and how he had promised the good thief who acknowledged him as Lord, today you will be with me in paradise. And these men soaked up every word of Fuchida's message. And on the spot, everyone accepted Christ as as Savior and kneeling asked for pardon of their sins. Then they banded themselves together in the Calvary Club for mutual help and consolation. Later, Fuchida received word from the prison director of how these men had gone to their deaths. Before the guards had to drag condemned men to the gallows, he wrote, but the members of the Calvary Club walked to the gallows like men, upright and straight, praying every step of the way, Christ be with me today in paradise. Fujita goes back to the U.S., and then he goes onward to Europe. This is the late 1950s, and he goes to Germany, which is at that point divided between East and West, and they're on West Germany, but they want to go into East Germany. It's very difficult. They do um, eventually manage kind of a, a very 
strict tour of the area. Um, but he notices in West Germany that there is absolutely no interest in Christianity. They have these beautiful churches, but these churches are empty. And the people who are there just sit in the pew with their eyes glazed over. And he realizes this is exactly the same way it is in Japan. Both Germany and Japan had state-sponsored religions. For Germany, it was the Lutheran Church. For Japan, it was Buddhism and Shintoism. And both in both of these things, the government poured money into these churches. They had beautiful buildings for worship, but the people's hearts were dead, and there was nothing. N- there was no spark of revival. There was no spark of anything. And Mitsuo is even there on Reformation Day, and he gets excited at first because the church is, is happening. It's lively. The children are laughing. They're coming. And he realizes they're only there for the candy and the festivities. And there's this old gray-haired man that's outside of the building, and Mitsuo is, is lamenting to him. And the man says, we need another Reformation. And this was incredibly demoralizing to Mitsuo, who looks at this and sees this, this cradle of the Reformation. And it, this, to see what it is now was just incredibly hard for him. And while he's wandering around just demoralized, he notices there's this movie theater that is playing a series of Japanese and American wartime reels. And they're not propaganda. They're just merely the reels playing. There's no, there's no, what would you call that, voiceover or anything like that. And these were quite popular films. And he watches it and he's like, oh, this is really interesting. And he talks to the person who is in charge of running the movie. And she says, hey, if you want to get up after the movie, then you can share the gospel with people. And so he does that three times a day the entire time he's there, which is for a couple weeks. He gets up and shares the gospel. And this is one thing that struck me about Mitsuo's story is at every given opportunity, he is always looking for ways to share the gospel with people in the most unlikely ways. And that's what makes his story so very cool. And afterward, Mitsuo goes to Paris, and he has high hopes for Paris. He says, okay, Germany's dead, but maybe Paris is okay. And what he finds in Paris is much the same, if not worse, than what he found in Germany. As he leaves Europe, he leaves a sadder and more thoughtful man. What he's hoping for when he gets to Europe is this this continent that's just steeped in Christianity. They've had it for almost 2,000 years But what he sees instead was a civilization losing its spiritual life. They had lost Christ, he lamented, and now all over Western Europe, I saw how materialism had conquered most of the people like a false god. This was the reason I wanted to make a second and third trip to Europe. I wanted to reach the heart of Europe through the spirit of Christ so he wouldn't be lost to Western civilization. Now, if you've listened to the episodes on Gladys Aylward, this is very similar to the way that the Chinese believers felt in the 1930s. They looked at newspapers in Britain and they said, oh my goodness, what is happening over there? And they convinced Gladys, they said, you've got to go back home. The people there are struggling with celebrities. There's sports. There's just basically this entire materialistic bubble of blah. You have to go back and fix it. And what's interesting in that to me is that All these years ago, when the church in the East and the believers in the East saw that the West was struggling, it broke their hearts. And today, when we look at ourselves in the Western civilization, we go, we deserve this. And so we look to the East to be the Savior, to carry on the torch. But in reality, we should also be broken over the state of the Western world and seek to save it in the same way the East felt and still feels in the same way today. 
instead of giving up on it and saying, oh, let's just pass the torch, the torch should be burning around the world. We don't pass it like a relay race. The whole world should be burning with fervor for Christ. And we should all feel the sadness and brokenness that Fuchida and these Chinese believers felt when they saw the state of the West these 70 or 80 years ago now. Fuchida does go back to Europe, and he tries to get into Poland, but Poland is closed off because it's held by the Soviets. Instead, he goes to Helsinki, which is the capital of Finland, and they're hosting a gigantic festival, which is still a big deal today, which I didn't know that was a thing. I looked it up, and it's still ongoing. Every year, about, they host a gigantic festival, huge. Everybody kind of around the area who's into acrobats, sports, that kind of like festival-y things, they send their people to Helsinki. Russia is no exception. They send their acrobats, and these acrobats are absolutely incredible. Very talented young men and young women, and Fuchida is also incredibly impressed with them. The organization that he is in Helsinki with is trying to distribute these tracts, which contain the Book of John, in multiple different languages because this is an international event. And Fuchida really wants to get them in the hands of these Russian acrobats. They won't take them, Fuchida understands, but he's also very depressed about it. And one evening he's in the elevator and there's this young Russian acrobat who gets on and he says, you know, says, hi. The acrobat is like, "Eh, eh, I don't know, he seems scared. And eventually before the elevator stops and the door opens, he motions for one of these tracks and Fuchida very quickly hands him one of the tracks. Later on that evening, he's in his hotel room when a knock comes on the door. And there are at this point three Russian acrobats who come in and they ask for these gospel tracts. And he gives them to them. In fact, he gives them to them in a few different languages. And then again, his door is knocked upon and two more people come in and ask. And while in public, they don't acknowledge Fuchida. They don't even acknowledge to each other that they've done this. They just, they're very closed about it. But Fuchida is thrilled because he says, look at this, like even, I don't know what their motivations were for taking it. Maybe they um, wanted to be rebels. Maybe they were curious. Maybe, you know, who knows what their actual intent was. But because they took these tracks, the gospel is able to penetrate through the Iron Curtain. Toward the end of his stay in Helsinki, he has this interesting interaction with a Russian reporter. She comes up, she says, hey, can I shoot you? And Fuchida says, what? And then he realizes she means take your picture. And he says, sure, go ahead, because he uses it as an opportunity to share the gospel with her. But the Russians didn't really care about his message. They wanted information. So after the meeting, the girl interviewed him and said, what is it you're doing? What's your purpose? He said, I'm evangelizing for Christ, who is our only Savior. He explained how he had come to Helsinki because Poland wouldn't let him in. This is a good mission field from which to reach you communists, because you sent so many young people to Helsinki for the festival. The girl's eyes widened because she says, what is he doing thanking the government for bringing these Russians over to hear the gospel? I must take advantage of such a big opportunity for Christ, don't you think so? His interviewer is just completely stunned, and he says, hey, I want you to make sure that you get this back to Moscow. I want them to hear that this is just amazing and thank them for their cooperation in this. And her mind turns. You can just see the wheels turning in her brain, and she does actually take this back to Moscow. And then it gets back to the Japanese equivalent, this uh, communist newspaper who then calls Fuchida the enemy, which he He says, you got to consider the source, but he's just ecstatic with how this meeting in Helsinki goes. I want to backtrack just a little bit to say, what is going on with the wife and kids? We know that they got saved. What happened after that? Well, 
His wife never comes with him to the U.S. She never leaves Japan. She's terrified of leaving her native soil, and she just wants to stay after the farm. She's very much a homebody. And both of her children, though, do leave for the U.S. Her son leaves first. Uh, He actually becomes an American citizen and becomes an architect in the U.S. Namitsuo's daughter is much harder for his wife to let go of, and she wants to go to the U.S. and become a, a dress seamstress, like an, an artist, design artist, dress artist. I'm not really sure what the exact wording for that is. She says, no, you absolutely can't go. I don't want to be left alone with nobody here. And they eventually agree on a compromise where Miyaki will go for one year, and then she'll come back. Well, that didn't happen either because Miyaki goes to school. She has lots of friends. She falls in love. She gets married, has children. And that leaves Haruko at home by herself for many, many years. And on the outside, she's a very stoic uh, kind of person. You would never, we would never know what, a, what an actually like sweet, good-natured soul she is. In fact, she actually has an ongoing stream of consciousness via letters going back and forth between her husband and her children. And these letters are so sweet. They contain little bits of of farm life like oh you know the flowers are blooming today you know the chickens hatched and just all these different things appreciating the beauty in nature and they're just very very sweet Mitsuo does end up spending the last 10 years of his life in Japan and he shares the gospel right up to the point that he just can't anymore and eventually he dies of diabetes complications on May 30th 1976 this was a few months after he had done a televised interview with Jacob DeShazer And when Jacob DeShazer hears about the passing of Mitsuo, he weeps very openly. He attends the funeral. He says he mourns him. He he lost a brother in Christ, and he's looking forward to seeing him again in heaven. The relationship between these two men is, is just absolutely a thing of God because you have both these men just absolutely embittered. They come from very similar background. I mean, almost identical backgrounds, just in two different countries. The same Bible verse stands out to them. They end up becoming missionaries in each other's countries, and it's just so incredible to see how God can just transform a heart that seems completely like, you know, like a piece of coal and can just transform it to something completely unrecognizable. Both DeShazer and Mitsuo spent their lives having to explain to people, you know, why they were doing what they were doing, that it truly was the gospel that had transformed their hearts. They weren't opportunists. They weren't there to rub it in people's faces. They just genuinely loved God and loved people and wanted other people to experience the peace and love of Christ. And it really was as simple as that. And for Mitsuo, he spent his entire career fending off reporters who only wanted him to be known as the man who burnt bombed Pearl Harbor, or for DeShazer, he was the Doolittle Raider. But these men were, that's where their story began, but their story is so much bigger than that and has so much more eternal impact than that, that these people could not see. DeShazer spends 30 years in Japan and he plants 23 churches. Many of the believers, the Protestant believers who are there in Japan today, can actually trace their Christian heritage to DeShazer. He retired from ministry in the 1970s, and he lived in Oregon with his wife for the rest of his years. Later on, he contracted Parkinson's, and on March 15, 2008, he died in his sleep. If you would like to see the interview these two men did in the few months leading up to Mitsuo's death, it's available on YouTube. I actually will probably, I'll just link it for you guys, Um, but it's really uh, quite good. They're just telling their basic stories. 
They're telling how they became believers and just how the Lord had touched them. And now they were working together, not as soldiers for their countries, but as soldiers for Christ. And it's it's really, really uh, cool to see and hear it in their own words. So I encourage you to do that. I also encourage you to check out God's Samurai. It is so good and well worth the time to read it. As always, thank you for listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.